Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. We are all evil in some form or another. I'm not guilty. The dead won't bother me. The living you gotta worry about. Some, if I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Hello and welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Cast. I'm Vicky. And I'm Janelle for real this time. <laughs> <laughs> you guys won't hear this, but we just had a little audio glitch that. <laughs> Um, well, we basically had to start again, but it's okay because mm-hmm. we're here now and it's yeah. fine. <laughs> <laughs> these are, these are the, the things that happen when you are recording at home and not <laughs> in our, our normal studio. Yeah, that's not okay. Because super reliable laptop either. <laughs> mm, yeah, same girl. Marginally okay laptop. <laughs> um, so if this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. We have a great show for you again today, but first, let's head over to the newsroom. Our story today comes from Louisiana. And police received a complaint from a woman who accused her brother, 33-year-old Cody Johnson, of stealing her prescription Adderall. When she confronted him, he became very defensive and started yelling and then left to go to his own residence. And when authorities went to Johnson's house, he denied that he used any amphetamines or Adderall-type medication, insisting that he only used heroin. It's not a big deal. Heroin. Is no, totally chill. Not at all. Not the same thing either. Like, don't no. come at me with the amphetamines. I only use heroin. <laughs> I like to feel like a puddle, not have energy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he did eventually admit that he might have touched his sister's purse, but only because he was looking for a lighter and he didn't steal anything from it. Yeah, to do the heroin, obviously. <laughs> Now, when authorities searched his residence, they found bags containing methamphetamine, 11 small orange tablets, several used syringes, a digital scale, and a metal spoon with residue. Hmm. It's like, oh, that's amphetamines? I thought that was hair when I was doing this whole time. 
<laughs> oh, that? Oh, that's what you're talking oh, about. Oh, now it makes so much more sense. <laughs> um, he was brought in and charged on two counts of possession of a Schedule II drug and two counts of possession of drug paraphernalia. I just love the argument that's like, I don't do that. I do this other really hard drug. Like, Yeah, duh. Why? I go hard. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we're going to move along to Netflix and Kill. Now, we have been talking recently about trying to give people something to watch while they're stuck at home. And even looking back at some of the things that we might have missed, which there's definitely, I mean, with the amount of like true crime documentaries and series and stuff that are out there, we are bound to miss something. <laughs> it happens. We are perfect some of the time. <laughs> I know you might think that we're perfect, but we make mistakes, too. <laughs> yeah. Case in point, the audio wasn't working. <laughs> <laughs> True. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a documentary on Netflix called I Called Him Morgan. Have you mm. uh, watched or heard of this one? I have not. I don't think. Okay. <laughs> Again, not good with titles. <laughs> yeah. This is a documentary. It was actually released in 2016 and was made by a Swedish group. Um, the documentary is an account of the life of jazz trumpeter Lee Morgan and the relationship with his common-law wife, Helen Morgan, who would later be convicted of his murder. The documentary itself was filmed over the course of seven years. And he, so Morgan, uh, Lee Morgan was killed on February 19th, 1972 at a jazz club in New York's East Village following an altercation with Helen Morgan. She shot him. And while the injuries themselves were not initially fatal, Lee Morgan eventually bled to death due to a delay in the ambulance arriving on scene because New York had just experienced this heavy snowfall. And Mm -hmm. so it took them longer to get to this jazz club. Now, Helen Morgan spent a short time in prison before eventually being released. She died in 1996. But I think this is really interesting because it's not like your standard true crime doc i mean it's kind of this old the jazz it talks a lot about the jazz scene and um Mm -hmm. the relationship between him and his wife i worth worth checking out i think if you want something a little different as far as true crime docs go yeah that sounds interesting yeah um so it's called i called him morgan it's on netflix uh you could check it out right now because it's up it's there (laughs) (laughs) This is that part of the show where you say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. This one is pretty, for me at least, pretty brutal. But hey, if you didn't come here for brutal, what did you come here for? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So today, we are talking about the state of Maine. Mm -hmm. I've I've driven through Maine when I was in Canada. You know, it's funny because I was thinking about this. I don't think I've really been to any part of the New England region. Huh. Uh, Normally, when you live, especially where we live in the Midwest and and in Illinois, you normally go north. A lot of people up here go north to Wisconsin and do Hmm. that thing. I go all over. (laughs) East, south, southwest. (laughs) Yeah, um, but I've never been in the new to like anywhere in the New England region. 
Um, and Maine has always been a state that has been interesting to me from like a crime perspective. It's honestly not a state that we talk about very often on the show if we ever talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm try- I was trying to think of a time if we've ever like had anything up that way and I don't think we no. have no i mean we skipped a couple states so. <laughs> it yeah yeah <laughs> but there's a good reason for that maine is actually the safest state in the country as far as crime goes hmm. uh according to usa today in 2018 there were 112 reported violent crimes for every hundred thousand people making it the least of any state Even their capital, which had the highest violent crime rate in the state, still had less recorded violence than the rest of the country as a whole. Hmm. Uh, Maine also has this very long history of not using uh, capital punishment or not using the death penalty. The first execution in the state happened in 1644, but by 1876, the death penalty had been abolished. It briefly returned in 1883, but was abolished again in 1887 after a poorly tied noose forced convicted murderer Daniel Wilkinson to die slowly of strangulation. It kind of really gave ammo to the anti-death penalty movement and I think forced a lot of people, because at the time, executions were all done by hanging. Every single one was a hanging. So... All it takes is one poorly tied noose to make people think twice about (laughs) hanging people, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) There have been a few more attempts to bring it back, but all have been unsuccessful. And Maine has actually only had a total of 21 executions in the state's history, 20 of which were murderers and one was for treason. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to look at one of the more violent crimes that has happened in the state And so I'm going to talk about a man named Matthew Cushing. Mm -hmm. The Cushing family was like your, they're your pretty average family. They lived in southern Maine in a town called Old Orchard Beach. That's confusing. It's an orchard, but also a beach. (laughs) Also a beach. (laughs) (laughs) Although that could be really pretty if there's actually orchards on the beach, but I don't know how well they'd survive. Yeah, I don't really think apples do well with a lot of water. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 43-year-old Christopher Bulldock and his wife, 42-year-old Carol, had two kids, 21-year-old Matthew Cushing and 15-year-old Joshua Bulldock. Now, Matthew was actually Carol's son from a previous marriage, so it was kind of a blended family. Hmm. Um, But people around the Bulldogs had said that Christopher had always treated Matthew as his own son, although later Matthew would dispute this by saying that he had been abused, but it doesn't seem like that's actually accurate. At 21, Matthew was attending the University of Maine studying European history. Um, Now, during his college days, as so many people do when they go off to college, they get a little experimental and uh, Matthew started drinking heavily and got really into doing cocaine. I thought you were going to go a very different route with that. Oh, no. <laughs> no. I'm talking about drugs. Drugs. <laughs> uh, so he he got into, like, doing cocaine so much so that it, it seemed to be affecting his moods, and he became really agitated and manic with very obvious personality changes. Um, and this is really common in drug addiction when it mm-hmm. gets 
real bad. Yeah. There are a few things that are mentioned in court documents that seem to have happened around the same time that were all seeming to be contributing factors in a motive. Now, first, Matthew had actually decided to take a small hiatus from school in order to backpack around Europe, but was incredibly upset when Christopher and Carol refused to pay for it, insisting that he continue taking classes. But this seemed pretty minor when Matthew had actually found out that his mom and stepdad had decided to separate. He didn't really feel like divorce was an appropriate recourse and wanted to keep the family together, but was also concerned about his mother's ability to support herself financially and was really worried about that. Mm -hmm. It was at this point that he began researching things on the internet, such as the best places to stab people. (laughs) Okay. Like, a location on the body or in the world? Yes. Oh, no. Um, like a location on the body, like where Top the best points on the body were to stab people. Epic places to stab someone in Door County. You know, that's what I, that's where my mind went. Presented by BuzzFeed. Yes. <laughs> he also went ahead and acquired a stun gun at this point. Hmm. During later court proceedings, authorities said they had found some writings that had indicated he had issues uh, with homosexuality. They always said issues with homosexuality, but it was implying homophobia. Uh Um, This is important because prosecutors uh, brought up in court that it was believed his stepfather, Christopher, was in a gay relationship. And that was part of the contributing factors to why his parents were... Um, splitting up. Hmm. He wouldn't act on any of these impulses until one day in February 2008. According to later interviews with Matthew, he has said, although he was agitated about the divorce of his parents, it wasn't until that day that he was suddenly struck with the urge to kill Christopher, although he has admitted to having thoughts of killing before that day. Hmm. But I think it's pretty obvious that there was some planning put into this with like all the research and stuff that he was doing beforehand. Yeah. We will circle back to that. It comes up later, but we're going to come back to to that. On the morning of February 20th, 2008, Matthew left his student apartment in Old Town and drove to the family home in Old Orchard Beach with a knife and a stun gun in his possession. He didn't actually park his car at the family home, but instead parked it downtown and then walked to the home. There he found his half-brother Joshua, who he had he like tried to reason with him and enlist his help in speaking to Christopher and convincing their parents to remain together. But at the time Joshua was 15, so I'm sure he was probably like, listen, this is not our business. We're just gonna, you know. They're going to do what they want. But he was not easily convinced um, to help. And uh, during court, Matthew said that he became enraged when Joshua compared him to his dad's gay lover, uh, which is where a little bit of this homophobia comes mm. in. Yeah. And he became so enraged that he began stabbing him repeatedly. 
Now, around this time, between 2.35 p.m. and 2.40 p.m., Carol called her husband, Christopher, to say that she had actually noticed their son's car parked at a dog park, which was weird because he was supposed to be at college, right? (laughs) But she decided to continue on her way home. Um, She was going home to check on Josh. About a half hour later... At 3.30 p.m., Christopher attempted to call Carol, but he wasn't able to receive an answer. Now, in the meantime, Carol had arrived home to find her son, Matthew, something that she wasn't really expecting. And so she began questioning Matthew as to why he was home and then started asking him about where Joshua was. At this point, Matthew attacked his mother, stabbing and strangling her to death. I'm doing a lot of head shaking. <laughs> I realize you can't see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was like, I'm surprised Janelle's not reacting to I'm that. Like, it's uh, the nonverbal cues. I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. This is an audio <laughs> format, you idiot. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Dear God, why? <laughs> <laughs> Now, Christopher was alarmed that he wasn't receiving the answer from the residents, and so he decided to go home to check out what was going on. And when he arrived, Matthew was there waiting for him and subdued him with the taser before also stabbing him to death as well. Police received a phone call at approximately 5.40 p.m. from a neighbor of the Bulldogs saying there was an alarm that was going off at the residence, and then... At 5.42, they received a recall, a call regarding a possible fire at the residence. Turns out that Matthew had decided to attempt uh, to start the house on fire in order to cover up the murders. Hmm. After setting the fire, he hopped into Carol's car, drove it to where he had parked his own car at the dog park, and then switched cars and returned to his college apartment. When authorities arrived on scene, the house was on fire, but it was able to be put out as the fire itself was not burning very well. It wasn't like a crazy out-of-control house fire. It was just like on fire, kind of. They put it out when they got there, and... Uh, fire investigators were able to enter the home where they discovered the deceased bodies of Christopher, Carol, and Joshua. They unfortunately, and I know you're going to hate this, they also uh, found the family dog had died. Always. Because the dog had been trapped in the kennel when the fire started. They along with finding the bodies of the family, they were also able to determine two possible points of origin for the fire, one in the kitchen where Christopher's body was found and in the first floor hallway. As always, we have to put a disclaimer here about fire investigations and mm-hmm. fire science. It's always the glue. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. This one I actually felt pretty comfortable covering because they also recovered a melted red plastic gas can. So it was like not any of this weird, you know, we're bringing a dog in to smell this possible accelerant. Mm -hmm. It's like they literally found a gas can like in the living room. I think the obvious assumption can be made. (laughs) Yes, I would say probably on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, so along with the melted red plastic gas can, they found a lighter, two cell phones, and a digital camera. It was known to police that there was another of another member of the family that wasn't at the residence. And so police began to seek out Matthew to sort of see what he knew. When he was finally located, it was at his student apartment in Old Town where they found him dressed in a pair of PJ pants and socks with cuts all over his hand. Um, but he was pretty cooperative in the be- beginning and agreed to speak with the main state police. Now you're gonna love this because oh boy. <laughs> this, is, this is definitely a this is definitely a what moment. But as they were questioning Matthew, he initially denied everything, and then he tried to explain the cuts on his hands as coming from cutting a thick piece of steak. A thick piece of steak. Yeah, which oh, I'm also God. wondering because I wasn't necessarily able to find like any images that they took when they took the evidence or or anything yeah. um, for reasons that will be explained later. But I'm I'm wondering they made it sound like he had multiple cuts on his hand, and I'm thinking how out of control was this piece of steak that? Yeah, what kind of fucking just... knife are you using? A butter knife. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. Which would be impressive to get a bunch of cuts in your hands as well. I mean, you can stab yourself <laughs> with, a with a butter knife, knife pretty bad. <laughs> if you're trying to can cut you? into something hard and difficult and then you jam it into your hand oh. for sure. Oh, I guess I've can. never been that violent with a butter knife. Because <laughs> you're like, oh, it's not going to cut me. So I'm going to use it to try to, like, I don't know, separate something. And yeah. then it slips and it stabs you because it's still a knife. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well now I know. Now I know to be more <laughs> careful with my know. butter knives. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, according to the affidavit submitted by police, when Matthew was asked about his whereabouts on February 20th, he said, quote, he had been at the University of Maine Arono campus walking around between the hours of 11 a.m. and 12 p.m., he had stated he was depressed and emotionally charged thinking about the past with his biological father, Paul Cushing, end quote. So at that moment, he decided that he wanted to drive to his biological father's house to confront him about their past. Now, he went as far south as a town called Demariscata before he had to pull over on the side of the road to cry because he was just so overcome with emotion. After this little cry session <laughs> on the sarcasm the side of the road. Was amazing. I know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so here's the deal. It's like, if this was... I, I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm judging people who have to pull over and cry on the side of the road, but like, it's quite a story that is fabricated... To, to just account for all of this this time. So, I don't know. It's just one of these things that I'm just like, okay. So he pulled over on the side of the road to cry, so he says. And then he decided to turn around and go back to his home in Old Town around 7 p.m. And he said the entire drive took about two and a half hours and that he was not in Old Orchard Beach at all on the day of the attack and fire. He also said that he hadn't seen any of his family members in person since a break in mid-January. But by this time, unbeknownst to Matthew, they had recovered Carol's car 
And so they were asking questions, asking Matthew questions about the use of the car. And he said he had only driven the car uh, once, approximately a year before. Following this initial questioning, Matthew was released pending lab results and reports from searches of Matthew's student apartment. Swabs had been taken from red and brown stains that they had found in the vehicle, and two days later, tests showed that it was blood belonging to Matthew Cushing. The search of the apartment turned up a backpack containing the knife and stun gun. Both the knife and the backpack had blood evidence on them. And so acting on this information, Maine State Police called Matthew back in to re-interview him, at which point he confessed to killing his entire family and setting the house on fire. Really? Who would have thought? (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's like, duh. (laughs) Additional evidence was collected following Matthew's confession, and it soon became clear this attack was planned and premeditated with the searches and the purchases of weapons. Uh, Prosecutors would also later point to the amount of time between murders that he had to consider his actions, which was about an hour between each. So when he stabbed Joshua to death, there was about an hour before Carol arrived at the residence. And then there was another hour before uh, Christopher arrived home. And when you're talking about motive and intent, especially when you're looking at things like mental illness or insanity, please. They always talk about the ability to make decisions and to, you know, like that kind of thing. And the fact that there was so much time in between, mm-hmm. like definitely had enough time to think this is probably not a great idea. Following these interviews, he was arrested in quick order. He was charged with three counts of murder and arson. Almost a year after his arrest, uh, Matthew pled guilty to all four counts without any plea deal. Defense attorneys had said he really wanted to take responsibility for his actions, which is why they opted to do it without a plea deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they say. You know, <laughs> it's That's, again, one of, one of those things I'm like, okay, well... Ultimately, he would be sentenced to three life sentences, uh, something that was actually a first for the judge presiding over the case. He had never sentenced anybody to life before. Oh. There – I don't, which – that's kind of why I wanted to talk about Maine's history as far as criminal justice goes because these kinds of big crimes that happened in Old Orchard Beach, like that's not the standard. That's a very rare for something like that to happen there. There was some question to his mental state at the time, and while his mental evaluation remained sealed, uh, it was revealed that he had thoughts and images of killing people years before this happened. Yeah, that's not very surprising. (laughs) Yeah, and unfortunately, I think had his family known um, that he was having these thoughts, they would have probably tried to help him. But it's also a really difficult thing, I think, for somebody to come out and say, listen, I'm having thoughts of killing people. I think this is a problem because, you know, you're never sure how somebody's going to react or, I, you know, it's like your, your secret. And so a lot of times these things go 
unknown until it's way too late. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly enough, a lot of Matthew's family came to his defense at the time of trial, oh. um, saying they couldn't understand what would have driven him to do such a thing. Uh, even Christopher's father, Dick Bolduck, pleaded for something less than life in prison. Um, kind of, he was kind of just like this isn't him. Like, obviously, the sentence fits the crime, but it's not. I don't want to say they they said it wasn't his fault, but they were just like, we're not sure why this happened. He needs a lighter sentence. I don't know. <laughs> it's family love, I think, but nor denial. <laughs> yeah, also that. Um, that definitely was not a a sentiment that was shared by everyone in in the family. The family itself seemed kind of split um, between wanting to get some leniency and wanting to lock, literally just lock him away, throw away the key. Unfortunately, because Matthew pled guilty right away, there are many details that would have been revealed over the course of a trial that we may now never know. But most importantly of all, the true reasons why Matthew did what he he did are probably never going to be revealed. Mm-hmm. He hasn't ever said much about the crimes other than to read an apology in court. He has done a few interviews since going to prison. There's one he did uh, with Investigation Discovery that we'll post in the research link section of this episode. That was kind of interesting, but... It really is nothing of substance. Most of them are that that kind of thing where they kind of seem to be avoiding the large questions. You know, it's like, why did you do this? In this clip from Investigation Discovery, she she Matthew tries to explain. You know, it was that at that point that morning that I knew um, I was going to kill Christopher. Mm-hmm. She straight up is like, yeah, but how long did you? How long before that did you buy the stun gun? Like, you know, wouldn't yeah. you say then you knew two months before when you bought yeah. the stun gun? A little more premeditation. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of times when you see uh, convicted convicted murderers in that situation, they definitely do their best to, like, explain it away or try to deflect mm-hmm. or, you know, you see it all the time. Um, but currently... Matthew remains in prison and doesn't seem to be wanting to give up any additional information anytime soon, at least. Yeah. So that is the story of the murders of the Bullduck family. Hmm. Well, hmm. that was a wild ride. <laughs> uh, thank you. <laughs> yes, of course. I had a little bit of everything. Murder, arson, you know. Yes. Fleeing the scene. <laughs> Being an overall just fucking weirdo. Um. Mm-hmm. <laughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So my story is going to be a, I might say, even wilder ride. Um, Okay. And it's going to span across three decades. Nope, four decades. I don't know how to add. Um, <laughs> and um, it's gonna be it's gonna be strange. So we're going to start off our story with a nice, fun little. Okay, maybe not fun. A nice little <laughs> family. Um, so James and Jenny Hicks were married. Um, and this was the mid seventies and they had a few children and they lived in a trailer park in Carmel, Maine. And it was kind of, you know, your standard average family, but the marriage was a bit of a rocky one. Uh, Jenny had tried a couple times to file for divorce. The two had gotten married very young. She was only 22 years old. Um, and I think he was like a year or so older than her, um, but, you know, they were very young and they fought a lot and she tried to divorce him several times. Um, Jimmy had mm-hmm. a job at Paul Lorne's construction company and he would wake up at 4.30 and be out of the house by 5 so that he could come home and have dinner with his family every night is what he said. Okay. In July of 1977, the family went for a little drive, which was very standard. They would go out and do like, you know, family outings together. Mm-hmm. Uh, reportedly, the couple got into a heated disagreement, which was about Hicks making sexual advances at their live-in babysitter. Okay. So Jenny got upset, obviously, and left to go stay with her sister for a little bit. Jenny supposedly left her sisters on the night of the 18th and brought the children home. Um, again, they had a live-in babysitter. Right. And then she went out, supposedly. Okay. Now... The weird thing is she never came back and Hicks reported her his wife missing on July 19th. Um, Jenny's parents also filed a separate report declaring her missing once they tried to contact her after she had stated her sisters and did not call back. They reported her missing as well. Now, the police came out to investigate the case, but little was done as no one had actually seen Jenny after she had returned the kids back to the house. One of the really strange issues with this disappearance is that Jenny's purse and eyeglasses were still at home when she was reported missing. Okay. Now, this is important because Jenny is clinically blind without her glasses. Oh my gosh. Okay. For her to leave her home without them is weird because she would not be able to see let alone drive anywhere. Yeah. So there were a couple of sightings uh, months after her disappearance of Jenny in and around uh, Carmel, Maine area. Okay. Even Hicks himself stated that he saw, he thought he saw her walking out of the local bar, the Gateway Lounge. And when he went to investigate further, she was gone. Now, Hicks was exhibiting a lot of really strange behavior he began to demand that Jenny's employer release her last paycheck to him, like calling and leaving incessant messages and saying some pretty um, provoking things. 
Okay. Um, Jenny's parents also began to get really suspicious of Hicks. And one day, because this is a small town, so it's not um, unheard of to kind of be walking around town and running into people. Mm -hmm. Um, They ran into him on the street and they started talking and kind of gotten into a disagreement. And they stated that the parents stated that they know that he killed their daughter and disposed of her body. And he reportedly answered saying, you could never prove that. Okay. Well, there, I mean, so, it's like, <laughs> it, you if you need a list of ways not to incriminate yourself, that would not be on Don't it. say that. <laughs> yeah. So Jenny's parents hired a private investigator and really the case didn't go anywhere. Uh, she remained missing and there was no further investigation until we're going to fast forward to 1982. Okay. Gerilyn Lee Towers was a 34-year-old woman living in Newport, Maine, which isn't that far away from Carmel. She had three children that she shared custody of with her ex. She lived in a trailer park, and the new man she was dating had just gone to jail. (laughs) So she was not really in the greatest position. Yeah. On top of that, she also had a significant amount of health issues and was taking medicine specifically for problems with her liver. Jerry was a patron of the Gateway Lounge and would often be seen there on Friday or Saturday nights. In October of 1982, Jerry's stepfather dropped her off at the Gateway Lounge, and she was never seen or heard from again. Uh Uh-oh. On the 17th, Jerry's eldest son informed his grandparents that she had not come home, and they immediately reported her missing. They knew something was wrong, as all of her meds that she needed for her liver issue were still at home. So she wouldn't go anywhere without those again. Okay. I feel like he's <laughs> I, I, I don't know if he's intentionally like picking women that have some sort of malady, but like again Maybe just Maine has Maine has very feeble people in it. I don't know. <laughs> feeble. Maine is the feeble state. <laughs> yeah. So they report her missing and immediately are concerned. The stepfather was like, okay, we dropped her off at the gateway, so let's, you know, figure out if anyone saw her. So they go to the newspaper and they ask them to run a missing persons ad. And after a short while, tips begin coming in. Uh, Someone reported seeing her with none other than fucking Hicks. Um, Another bartender actually confirmed this as well. So there was two people that confirmed seeing Jerry with Hicks. Damn. They went to inquire about the coincidence and visited Hicks at his uh, trailer. Once there, uh, Hicks appeared very agitated and kept pacing and drinking um, like copious amounts of water, like slamming glasses of water. Okay. So um, the police pressed him and he stated in a, a statement that he was at the Gateway Lounge and maybe he might have seen Jerry there, but he wasn't sure uh, about it because he wasn't really sure what she looked like. When pressed even further, uh, he stated he might have walked out of the bar at the same time as her. It's like, well, maybe we left at the same time. You know, trying every which way to kind of right. be like, I saw her, but I didn't see her, you know? <laughs> yeah, which, let's be real, like, people can sort of see through that. They look hard enough. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, while the police were questioning him in his trailer, uh, his live-in girlfriend Linda arrived home and, like, kicked them out it was very weird she was like get out of my house very like weirdly protective yeah so 
Now, this is where things get really, 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 really weird. Uh, the police couldn't prove anything further about Hicks picking up Geraldine, so instead they decided that they were going to try and go back and see if they could reinvestigate the disappearance of his wife in 1977 and see if maybe they could also get a little bit out of him about Geraldine. Okay. So kind of like a two-for-one yeah. pounce on him. Well, I remember when your wife disappeared, sort of a thing. <laughs> yeah. So they pulled in other women that he had dated and... um you know, we're asking them questions, one of which of these women was named Fern. And Fern stated that she saw him um, a couple years ago dispose of a mattress that looked like it had blood stains on it. Hmm. Now, there was no body and there was a significant lack of evidence in both cases, but especially in his disappeared wife case. Um, <laughs> right. They only had on record um, the fight and that she disappeared without taking the things that she needed. Mm-hmm. So they were really um, stretching. Um, it's also extremely difficult to bring forth a case without any physical evidence. Yeah. But you know what? They did. Wow. The case actually did go to trial in 1984. They called tons of witnesses for the prosecution. People were saying all kinds of random ass stuff. like, uh, And a lot of it is very like hearsay, like, This Mm -hmm. one gentleman who lived in the trailer park with him said that he saw lots of ropes and cinder blocks in the bed of his truck. Um, They also talked about the babysitter and the sexual advances and Jenny's parents' issues. So I'm going to read from a the actual indictment. So this is the state of Maine versus James Hicks, and it was a 1985 decision. So I'm going to just kind of briefly read about the information so you can get a better idea directly from the um the statement here girl you know i love a good court document (laughs) oh yeah court documents are the shit um and i was very surprised i had a very difficult time finding information about this case but there was a couple sporadic court documents and i was able to find quite a few newspaper articles that i could pull from too like scanned in newspaper articles from yeah. microphage like yeah it's crazy um and you know that's my jam yeah it is <laughs> microfilms microfage is my jam mm-hmm. okay so in july of 1977 the defendant his wife and their two children veronica age six and son and sean age two were living in a trailer park in carmel jenny was known to be a loving responsible mother she was employed by the penobscot nursing home and brewer as a kitchen worker and began studying for a certification as a nurse's aide she was described by her employer as reliable and motivated and appeared enthusiastic about the prospects of furthering her education. In order for Jenny to continue working, she asked Susan Matley, a 15-year-old girl from Massachusetts, to move in with them and care for the children. Susan accepted the offer and became the Hicks's live-in babysitter in June of 1977. The arrangement seemed to suit everyone involved until the defendant made sexual advances towards Susan on July 17, 1977. Susan told Jenny about the incident the following day. On July 18th, Jenny, along with Veronica, Sean, and Susan, went to visit Jenny's sister, Denise Clark. Veronica asked if she could stay with her aunt during Miss Clark's vacation. Jenny and Miss Clark agreed that it would be fine if Veronica spent the night. Jenny indicated that she would bring home Veronica's clothes to her the next day. Jenny also told her sister that she would drive her to the dentist when she arrived with Veronica's belongings. Before leaving her sisters, Jenny declared her dissatisfaction with the defendant, James Hicks. She told her sister that the defendant would be moving out the next weekend and that if for some reason he did not leave, she would move out. She declared that she would never leave the children with him. So 
I'm going to kind of skip over this part about her baking a cake because it's not important. (laughs) (laughs) Important enough to put in the indictment, apparently. (laughs) Yes. So I was just saying that she was at home making something. The defendant came home. They ate dinner. Um, They had the argument about the sexual advances. He questioned Jenny and she responded that they would discuss things later. James Hicks reported that he tried to kiss his wife goodnight and she would not let him. She showed extreme displeasure with his actions um, and they threw dishes. Um, During the early morning hours of July 19th, a neighbor of the Hickses reportedly heard Jenny Hicks screaming, a man swearing and a small child crying. This neighbor specifically recalled that Jenny screamed, oh, stop, Jimmy, please stop or stop. You're killing me. The Hicks's trailer then became quiet, and she noted that there was a light on inside. Soon thereafter, the neighbor heard noises that resembled the sound of wood being chopped or sawed. Ugh. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> when Susan Matley returned to the Hicks's trailer at 4 a.m., she perceived that something was wrong. As she entered the living room, she found the defendant sitting in a chair watching television and Jenny lying on a love seat with her head down on its wooden arm. Jenny's hair covering her face, and Susan noted that her body was in an awkward position for sleeping. Susan remembered seeing Jenny wearing a blue fuzzy bathrobe at the time. After Susan went to her room and got into bed, she heard slippers scuffling across the floor and then heard the trailer door open. Susan was afraid to investigate what she had heard. She hid her head under the covers and eventually fell asleep. So on July 19th, sometime before 6 a.m., the defendant called Linda Elston and asked if Jenny was there. Mrs. Elston had not seen Jenny that morning. He mentioned that he had attempted to reach Jenny at the trailer, but there was no answer, and he needed to tell her where to find the keys to his truck. Susan testified that she never heard the phone ring and awoke only when she heard Sean crying in the doorway of his parents' room. Susan continued testifying that she looked in the trailer for Jenny, but Jenny was gone. Her glasses and purse were on the kitchen table, and the truck was parked in the driveway. The defendant normally drove the truck to work rather than the Hicks's car, Susan knew that it was odd for Jenny to have gone somewhere without her glasses. Jenny's vision was extremely poor. Um, Susan testified that she found Jenny's second pair of glasses in a a dresser drawer and determined that none of Jenny's clothing, except for the blue fuzzy bathrobe that Jenny was wearing, was missing um, and that she appeared to be missing. The defendant returned home from work sometime between 3.30 and 4 p.m. He asked Susan where Jenny was, to which Susan replied she had not seen Jenny all day. Susan told him that Jenny had left without her glasses, but he expressed no great concern and stated that Jenny only needed her glasses for reading and driving. Not true. Um, (laughs) The defendant then left the trailer for one or one and a half hours and returned home to tell Susan that that she and Sean were going to his mother's house. Apparently, he had previously stopped at Jenny's parents' house to ask if they had seen Jenny. He explained to them that she had left without taking the kids or her glasses. They, too, had not heard from their daughter. Upon arriving at his mother's house, the defendant left Susan and Sean and went somewhere with his brother George for about two hours. When the defendant, Susan, and Sean went back to the Hicks's trailer later that evening, Susan noted that a light had been turned on and Jenny's glasses had been taken. The defendant commented that Jenny must have been at the trailer while they were gone and left with her glasses. Approximately four days after the disappearance, Jenny's father noticed the defendant scratching his arms. The defendant claimed he had contracted poison ivy at work. According to the defendant's supervisor at the site, it was highly unlikely anyone could come in contact with poison ivy on the job. So there is the groundwork for the case and the indictment. Okay. Basically, what they're saying is he murdered his wife in their trailer and disposed of her body somewhere in the woodland area, possibly with the help of his brother. 
Okay. Um, that he got rid of the glasses after the live-in babysitter made mention that, you know, she left all of her belongings there. So there's a lot of things. And he laid the groundwork for her disappearance by going over to her parents' house and to talking with her sister, being like, have you seen her? Yeah, he definitely went to pretty extensive lengths to make it look like she had either just left or had been kidnapped mm-hmm. or something. So, yikes. Yeah. So they definitely posited it as she had left. Yeah. Um, of her own free will. Yeah. So that went to, to court. And after nine hours of deliberation, the jury came back with a guilty verdict of fourth degree homicide. Okay. So... He was sentenced to 10 years in prison, which was the maximum sentence. Again, they did this all based off of eyewitness accounts and pretty much zero evidence or a body, which is very unheard of. Yeah, and I don't know that you would be able to get much of a higher charge without a lot of that either. Yeah, but also take into consideration this is the early 80s, so right, this yes. type of homicide also wouldn't have that much of a sentence mm-hmm. anyway. Now, while in jail, Hicks... He had a girlfriend, and he was trying to marry his girlfriend, Linda, and was unable to marry her and to even remotely be able to fill out a marriage license because his wife had not been declared dead. So there's tons of these really ridiculous newspaper articles that I came across interviewing Linda about how much trials and tribulations she was going through to try to get married to this fucking scumbag because his wife was not declared dead. She was missing. There's also a weird law, apparently, that you can divorce somebody if they're missing, um, uh, which Hicks attempted to do but could not finish because uh, apparently at the time in Maine, in order to divorce somebody, if you couldn't serve them papers, you had to put the divorce decree in the newspaper. Oh, my God. Okay. And it was very, ex- very expensive to do so. Yeah. So if you couldn't serve the person, obviously she was missing, so they couldn't serve her with divorce papers. Right. They had to put it in the newspaper. He couldn't afford to put it in the newspaper because it cost too much. Yeah. So because he couldn't either divorce her and she was not declared dead, they were not able to get married. After much back and forth and a couple of more interviews with the newspaper, they uh, finally had a death certificate um, that went through and they declared his first wife dead. So Linda and Hicks were able to get married in jail in 1985. Aww. Yeah, well, so not. cute. Um, not. Uh, Hicks was released after only serving six years of his 10-year sentence, and so he was released in 1990. So that's the end. Just kidding. That's not the end. There's more. <laughs> oh, my God. It's never the end. It's never the end. This story is a goddamn roller coaster that's spanned across yeah, time. Yeah, this is crazy. Um, <laughs> it's a time roller coaster. Um, <laughs> so Linda eventually did divorce him, and uh, he actually got married again. There was, like, no lack of women with this dude. He was constantly in a relationship with someone, and I don't know how because – According to most of these women, he was severely abusive and belligerent and an overall asshole. So, yeah, but I wonder if he had, I mean, he <laughs> had to have some skill in being manipul- manipulative, you know, like. Oh, for sure. And he wasn't good looking either. So I really don't get it. But maybe, ugh. I mean, it's Maine. There's not that many people up there. So. It's Maine in the 80s. Like, <laughs> ew. Yeah. You know, you take what you can get. Yeah. <laughs> so now. It's 1994, and Hicks was working with a woman named Lynn Willette at a hotel. They began getting really chummy and eventually started dating. Then the two moved in together. 
In May of 1996, Lynn Willette is reported missing by her sister and to guess again, of all people, fucking Hicks. <laughs> Should we be surprised at this point? Or? I don't think so. Oh so my God. according to the story that he gave to the police, she had supposedly moved out to live by herself again. And then he went to go talk to her and she was missing. Now, nothing came out of this case either. Of course, he was suspected. But again, there was absolutely no evidence whatsoever. There was no witnesses in this one either. So this was an extremely difficult missing persons case. But they were on his ship because they knew, obviously, he went to jail for the murder of his wife and a, a second woman that he came encountered with um, was missing as well. So... Only four months after Lynn went missing, Hicks was already with another fucking woman. Damn. And he goes on to marry this woman named Brandy, and then they move to Texas. And that's it. Just kidding. Oh, no. (laughs) There's even more. (laughs) Wow, this shit is crazy. So now they move from Maine to Texas. Brandy is married to Hicks. Um, This is going to take one last really fucking bizarre turn. And it's not going to be like the rest of the the missing women that we have here. Oh, good. It's now 2000. Hicks was convicted in Texas of holding a gun to the head of a 67-year-old woman, forcing her to write a check to him of, I think it was like $1,000, and to sign over the title to her car and then write a suicide note. Wow. So he broke into this he broke into this woman's home, told her to do all these things. He planned to drug the woman and drowned her to make it look like a suicide. Oh my god. But somehow the 67-year-old lady escaped. That is fucked up. <laughs> Isn't it? Okay. I don't understand how it went from 0 to 10, how he went from like like for real murdering women that he lived with or, you know, had sexual encounters with to breaking into a 67 year old woman's home to steal all of her things and stage a suicide. Yeah, that's pretty (laughs) extreme. So the woman escaped. She identified the dude. They picked him up while he was in custody, obviously being (laughs) taken care of for this crime. He confessed to killing those women previously. Yes. Wow. (laughs) So he was convicted for, uh, to 55 years in prison because he cut a deal with authorities where he would agree to direct the authorities in Maine to the bodies of the three missing women in exchange for serving his time in Maine instead of Texas. Because, as we all know, Maine doesn't have the death penalty. (laughs) Exactly. So they cut a deal to 55 years in prison instead of possible death penalty in Texas. So he goes back to Maine. He tells the authorities where the bodies are. They locate the remains of the three victims after two days of digging around his former home in Etna and at several roadside sites in Aristook County, Maine. The remains of his former wife and towers were found a hundred feet apart next to the home where he grew up. Uh, Willette's remains were found in a concrete bucket buried next to the road in Aristook County. Apparently, all of the bodies were dismembered, and some parts he allegedly tossed in a nearby river and then buried. So, the dude is still in jail. Oh, my gosh. And um, that is the story of Hicks and murdering 
that every is woman wild. basically came across. <laughs> yeah, that is crazy. I like did a search. For, I was like Maine's most notorious killers, mm-hmm. and it brought up this guy, and it had three separate years like listed as the dates and i was like the fuck yeah that intrigued me and i was like i have to look this up but it's such a long drawn out case because of the fact that it takes place in technically two different places in maine and then one other place in texas and like Mm -hmm. it's kind of bounces all over the place yeah there's not a whole lot of inform like standard information i had to do a deep dive and pull up physical newspaper articles i had to pick up court documents and then i also found this this novel uh well uh more of a documentary kind of style book written by trudy irene she it's called tragedy in the northwoods i was able to get it for like a dollar on kindle but it's only like 170 pages it's a quick read that goes through every single aspect of each one of the cases yeah and it gives a lot more information about all the victims which i thought was really nice the author did a great job of painting pictures about these women's lives before they met this man Mm -hmm. and all the things they were doing and all the struggles they were having and i thought that was really um kind of an interesting piece of literature i thought that they did although it was you know it could have probably been a little bit longer in terms of talking about the crimes themselves what it really they discussed was these women's lives and uh speculations about what happened to them and then kind of what they were able to find out yeah yeah um so definitely check that out it's called tragedy in the north woods um but that's where i got a lot of my information and then those those newspaper articles are really good if you Mm -hmm. can search them or the court document i highly suggest it there is some very crazy interesting information in them yeah yeah, and that's the story (laughs) we'll put a link to that book in the research notes as well but if you are traveling to maine on a road trip why don't you check out this podcast need to satisfy a hungry mind every week your brain on facts brings you science why does mint feel cold history king charles ii of spain was so inbred his family didn't bother educating him music many hit songs and even entire albums were written for revenge technology The first video game was made on an oscilloscope in 1958. And every other topic under the sun. Look for Your Brain on Facts on your favorite podcast app or at yourbrainonfacts.com. Well, that has been our show, guys. Thank you again for joining us for another week of murdery stories. But before you go, we got some things to tell you about. Um, <laughs> we do <laughs> not not as many as uh, previously stated, and this will probably be the last time we talk about it because hopefully by now everybody knows. But unfortunately, our event that we had scheduled in July has been postponed. Um, the True Crime Podcast Festival that's happening in Kansas City, Missouri, due to COVID, will not be happening at this current time. Mm-hmm. We're bummed, but kind of assumed that would happen. <laughs> Yeah, we really wanted to see our fellow podcast friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> it's not happening. <laughs> it it we're not sure what the intent is yet to like reschedule or whatever is going to happen. But mm-hmm. you can keep up to date with them on their social media or at tcpf twenty twenty dot com for more information uh, regarding already purchased tickets or future dates or anything. But the good news is we do still have another event in uh, September. Right? Yes, sir, Bob, we do. You want to tell us about that, Janelle? <laughs> 
Heck yeah. Uh, so in September of this year, we will be participating in the Elgin Fringe Festival in Elgin, Illinois. This is a full week long event that has all kinds of amazing um, acts and performances that you can attend. You buy a, a button pass and you can get into a variety of shows. There's free shows. There's shows for a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars. It's super reasonable. You can buy a huge pass and get into every show. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. There's going to be so many interesting things there. There's comedians, musicians. There's all kinds of acts. It's a great time. But we'll be there live telling stories. Yeah. Um, and they do have a contingency plan if for some reason um, – I totally forgot to mention this last time. If for some reason there is uh, still kind of weird orders with people being in public places, it will be a, um online event then. Oh, nice. Well. That's good. We've got lots of practice doing that now. Yes. It's going to happen regardless if it's live in person or uh, a digital. Mm-hmm. So you can see us for the Fringe Festival. It's going to be a good time. I go every year. I'm usually a visual artist or uh, I do volunteer as well. They do like a little mini kids weekend as well. That's pretty fun. But it's a root and tootin' time. Go to ElginFringeFestival.com for more information to purchase tickets to see all the acts. I usually get the schedule and like plan out all the things i'm going to go see (laughs) yeah there's a lot of good stuff and we had a really great time working with them towards the beginning of the year so i'm definitely looking forward to that it should be should be a good time i barely remember that yeah (laughs) i barely remember the beginning of 2020 seems like it was so far away it wasn't it didn't even feel like it was this year (laughs) yeah i know if you can't wait to see us until uh, September, you can actually <laughs> check us out right now because we have been doing First live of all, streams. Hold your horses. What? <laughs> no, like if you can't wait to see us, hold oh. your horses. I was like, I thought you were talking to me. I was like, what? What did I say? No, uh, we. <laughs> We have been doing live streams on YouTube uh, for the last couple of weeks. Every Friday we are there. Um, you can go to <laughs> YouTube.com, search the Bad Taste Crime Cast, and take a gander at uh, all the bullshit we decide to talk about on Friday nights. Yeah, it's a fun time. It As is. As you said weeks, it has been months, Vicky. <laughs> Well, I mean, technically, there's weeks and months, right? I know, but it is so much longer than we think. It has. It's definitely, we've been doing (laughs) this for a couple of months. But it's really fun. It gives us an opportunity to connect directly with you guys. Mm-hmm. So if there's anything you want to hear us talk about on there, you can let us know. But we've also started posting all of our episodes to YouTube. So if that's an easier way for you to listen to audio, then go for it. It's there. It's available. Yeah. There's no excuse not to listen to us. <laughs> it's true. You can also find all of the audio at badtastecrimecast.com. And while you're there, you can navigate on over to the donate page where you will find our Patreon um, for tons yes. more extra content. Tons. Oh my literally gosh, so tons. much more BS from me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you love Opinions O'Malley, hop on over to Patreon. Oh my god, yeah. That Patreon is full of Janelle Opinions O'Malley. Yes. <laughs> there's a couple interviews, there's some cocktails and conspiracies. I mean, it is it's a wild ride, but just a dollar a month you can get some extra content mm-hmm. uh, if you're you know, Jones and for us in between weeks. <laughs> um, while you're there, you can also check out merch. We talk about it all the time. I'm not going to harp on it, but it's there at the website. There's a merch page. It's, Put it's fine. Us on your body. 
Not <laughs> not literally like merch. with tattoos, but Put you know our merch on your body. The merch, yes. <laughs> Yes. Um, Merch yourself with us. What? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) That being said, I think that's all we've got for you today. Our sound and editing is done by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakszewski, the Enigma. I still don't have the hype button. (laughs) Uh, I am your hype button. (laughs) We will be back with you in two weeks. Stay safe and goodbye.